We have been dealing with some very big issues of late. We had all kinds of questions during the season of Lent. And then, of course, on Easter, we dealt with resurrection and Christ being raised from the dead. And last Sunday, we dealt with resurrection in terms of how it involves us here and now and what that means for us as God's people today. And now we're going to explore another theological concept, incarnation. Incarnation is a very complicated, difficult notion to wrap one's head around, the idea of God being human. There are many different understandings and perspectives about incarnation. Theologians have debated it for centuries, um, and there is no one clear way of thinking about it. And I want to begin by saying what I've said all along through this series of exploration, that what I'm about to share is my own perspective, all right? You may have your own, and it may be different, and that is perfectly fine, all right? But I'm going to share what I've thought about, how it's come to me, and how I understand it after many, many years of, of thinking these things through. So when it comes to Mary being pregnant, the traditional classic view is that she was a virgin and she was with child by the Holy Spirit. We don't understand what that means exactly or how that could happen because biologically we know how things are supposed to work, right? But it's also possible that Mary got pregnant from Joseph and that Jesus was an illegitimate child. That's a possibility. We don't know. That actually might be more of a miracle that God came to us through the means of an illegitimate child than some super miraculous uh, birth. But we'll leave that up. I mean, there's just no way to prove that one way or the other. Those are just things we can think about. But it's, it's evident from the study of, of our tradition that the earliest Christians weren't concerned about Jesus' birth they were concerned about his resurrection. So the earliest followers of Jesus and the first, the first gospel written, which was Mark's gospel, doesn't even have a birth story at all. Wasn't interested. Was interested in getting to the reality of Jesus' resurrection. And that's what we did last week. We started with the resurrection and now we're looking at the incarnation. But typically, we like to think of things chronologically. That's just the way our finite minds work. We think of things chronologically. Birth first, then life, and then death. And then in Jesus' case, resurrection. That's how we think of it. But you know, a person's origin, the mystery of a person's origin, don't become important until the person becomes famous. So when a person becomes famous, then learning about their birth makes all kinds of sense. Hence, we know that Lincoln was born in Kentucky, and we now have a national monument there. You can go and visit. Same for George Washington in Virginia. We care about those things because they became famous. But unless any of, you, uh, of us become famous, really famous, in a few generations, our origin, uh, our birthplace isn't going to matter. I mean, after I'm dead and gone, and after my kids are dead and gone, and probably if they have kids, their kids, at some point, nobody on earth is going to care that David Young was born in Kokomo, Indiana. Let's just face it. That's just, that's just reality. Okay? Now, 
But for famous people, that's different. And so it was really important once Jesus became such a big figure in the early goings of the church that there had to be some traditions about his birth. And so these came to be known. I love the stories. Whether they really happened exactly the way they're recorded in Matthew and Luke, we'll never know for sure. But instead of Mary being inseminated by the Holy Spirit, let's consider that Jesus and God were engaged in spiritual lovemaking. Let's just think that maybe for a moment, rather than Mary having been inseminated by the Holy Spirit, that rather what happened, what was so amazing, is what happened after Jesus was born, is that God and Jesus came into such a close, intimate relationship. Like, like the, the close union of two people when they get married. Think of the, the closest people you've ever known, the closest marriage the people that you think have the absolute closest, most intimate marriage. There's a union there. There's this coming together. You know, the word communion means union with. And I'm suggesting that before we ever had communion of the Lord's Supper that Jesus did in the upper room, that God and Jesus were in this process of communion with one another. You see, I think Jesus got what or Jesus got what God was looking for. He got it so completely. I said in an earlier sermon that Jesus was the obedient one. And the word obedience means all ears. It means to listen. Jesus was all ears. Jesus was all ears when it came to his relationship with God. And so they were in communion with one another. They understood what it was to be together in their conversation. And how invested was God? God wanted to enter into God wanted to enter in to relationship with Jesus. And he was committed all the way, 100%. That's an amazing thing. To be of one heart, to be of one mind. The little boy was um, in Sunday school class about third grade, and, and they were learning about the Ten Commandments. And so um, when they got to the one about honor your father and mother, the teacher said, um, asked the class if anybody knew what Jesus' teaching about marriage were. And one little boy blurted out, forgive them for they know not what they do. <laughs> or you may remember the old you may remember the old adage, if you want to be happy, never hold hands. Because holding hands leads to kissing, and kissing leads to marriage, and marriage leads to, leads to talking, and before you know it, you've said the wrong thing. <laughs> But God and Jesus weren't saying the wrong thing. They were saying the right thing. They were in communication with each other, speaking heart to heart. They were 
of one mind. John 1 talks about in this cosmological birth narrative about Jesus. There's no wise men or shepherds. But it begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This idea of communication, that was in the imagination of the writer of John, that how things came into being was through communication, and that somehow this communication was so intimately wrapped up in God and Jesus. What an amazing, what amazing thing that is, uh, to have that kind of deepest life partnership. We can only imagine it in a close marriage, but think of it even closer in the intimacy and relationship between God and Jesus. All of me with my whole self loves all of you with all of you who you are. In, in weddings, I often use this uh, question that a man used to propose to his wife, and she recalled this after a long, happy marriage. The words he used to propose were, will you have a conversation with me for the rest of your life? And that's a beautiful understanding of marriage. But it's also an incredible understanding of the relationship between God and Jesus. To have had this intimate conversation, this communication, as Jesus grew, as he grew in wisdom and stature, the scriptures tell us, in his relationship with with God. We overcome separateness in life through union. And we all long for that. And that's what Jesus came to show. I don't believe that Jesus was just was God just who God just decided to come into human form and pretend to be a human being and kind of walk a few feet off the ground and know everything and be impervious to things and not really feel pain or no suffering, but just simply be God pretending to be human. I believe that that Jesus was fully human and that the deity chose to be in such an intimate, connected relationship with Jesus that that's what set him apart. That's what set him apart. So I want to turn to a scripture text that's not one that was read today, but that talks about this union And again, it comes from John's gospel. He had this more mystical understanding of of the relationship of God and Jesus. But here we are in chapter 17, and Jesus is talking to God. We don't know who was there to write all this down, but it was certainly the understanding that John had as he was writing this, that God and Jesus were having this conversation. Here it is in 17, chapter 20, the next couple of verses. Jesus said, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their words. So he was talking about not only these, his disciples, but those who will believe on their behalf. That's, that's us. That's the ongoing Christian community. That they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become completely one. That's the kind of union we're talking about. 
That's the kind of oneness. Now to connect to our scripture passages for today, reading first from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You see, the invisible God, we, we come to know God most clearly through Jesus because Jesus, through that one, when he became one with God, he took on God's nature. He took on God's identity. He became, in a sense, the best reflection that we've ever had on earth of what God is like. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There's the crucifixion and resurrection. So that he might become, that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You see, when you're all in in a relationship, when you're all in, you give of yourself completely to the other person. And God gave himself to Jesus in that relationship. In him he was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. How else is there oneness without reconciliation? How else is there healing without suffering? More on that in a moment. And then from our second passage in chapter 2. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him. That's an encouragement to be united with him, to be one with him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition. He's basically saying, be careful not to get caught up in alternate thinking. For in him, verse 9, for in him, here it is again, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. God was in Jesus, and you have come to fullness in him meaning you have fullness in him as well, who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him you also were circumcised. He goes on and says some things about circumcision. circumcision. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. Just as Jesus died on the cross, so too, Paul tells us, our sins, everything that separates us, is nailed to the cross too so that it can die. One way to think of sin is simply anything that separates. Separates you from God, separates you from others, or separates you from your best self. So, you get to decide what it is in your life that separates you from from God and others, and even yourself. That's what sin is. So this oneness, this oneness in God, this mystery of not understanding how God 
lived in and through Jesus? Did he do it through some miraculous insemination of the Holy Spirit? Or did he do it through some other vehicle in which they became so close and connected that it was as though they were one? I want to share personally. Um, I've had a few mystical experiences in my life. Uh, They weren't mountaintop, burning bush experiences, but I've had experiences where I have been so overwhelmed by the presence of God that in those times, it was as though I was one with God. Now, that I don't mean to sound strange about that. Uh, It wasn't anything I did on my own. There just was a time when I was so overwhelmed by God's presence that I, I truly felt that oneness of spirit and just caught up in it. And there was one time when I felt like I was at one with all things, with everything, with every plant, every living organism, everything in creation, just one with that. But those moments have come and gone. And I don't feel that all the time, but I can remember that, what that was like. But you know, as I think about what it means for God to be, for the deity, for God Almighty, whatever we want to call God, to be with us, to be incarnate, to be in human life, the one thing I've learned more than anything else is through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And that is that God is suffering love. More than anything else, God is suffering love. God doesn't just watch suffering. God participates. God is with us in our suffering. God is with each human being that suffers. Be it children who are devastated by the ravages of war. Be it children who are devastated by the ravages of hunger, poverty, or disease, natural disaster, the things that happen in the world or the things we do to each other. God is with us in our suffering. That, to me, is what the Incarnation is about. Not some magical, amazing God done through some whatever that people get hung up on. Was Jesus, was Mary a virgin or wasn't she? No. What we come to know most profoundly in the life and death and new life of Jesus is that God is with us in and through to transform our suffering into new life. So living your yes, what is it? I believe in part it's allowing God to live in you. To let God live in you. Because that's what Jesus tells us he wants. Just as Jesus says, as I and you, God, are one, so too may they be one in us as well.
To live our yes is to let God live fully in us. To let that blossom. Jesus said, I have come that they might have fullness of life and have it abundantly. I hope you will live your yes. And I hope you'll live it abundantly.